Hello, and welcome to Metachemistry. This is episode 15. In this episode, we will be wrapping up the last of our mission breakdowns that kind of stem from the Salt Lake Showdown event that is the first large-scale tournament that some of us will be attending in Season 12. And so we're going to be focusing on two missions tonight, Decapitation and Supplies. This rounds out the five-mission slate that Showdown has selected, including Unmasking, Acquisition, and Frontline. So when it comes to strategy games, it's always good to have a plan. And we talk about Infinity as not just a strategy game, but a tactics game. And so in thinking about how we think about divining a plan, I would like to suggest that there are a couple things you want to keep in mind. Plan to the entry point. This is a phrase that comes up in military circles quite often, especially when it comes to tactical engagements. Planning to the entry point means that you can essentially devise your strategy, come up with a plan for attack, but the moment a breach takes place, everything is likely to go sideways. As a result, you need to be able to accommodate what is the new situation that's coming at you. And so when we talk about planning to the entry point, it means when you're preparing for a mission, you have a general strategy, but there are a few things you need to keep in mind. The first is this, you need to always remain flexible. Flexibility allows you to adapt to the new situations as they arise. No matter how informed your plan may be, you do not have full knowledge. And as a result, you're going to have to be able to adjust. So being able to stay mentally supple, remaining flexible, not getting so locked in on your general strategy that you cannot adapt. If you are able to accommodate the new information that arises, you'll be more successful as the game unfolds. So remain flexible, then seize the opportunity when it presents itself. Always take advantage of new situations, new possibilities. Sometimes it's good to stick to the plan. My wife and I have a phrase that we like to throw at each other every once in a while. New plan, stick to the plan. And it's good to remain true to your initial intentions. At the same time, if you're not able to remain flexible and seize opportunities when they present themselves, you might miss an opportunity to swing the tide to your advantage. And finally, I'd suggest keep breathing. And when I say keep breathing, what I mean is stay cool under pressure. Don't allow yourself to get flustered. No matter how good a plan you have, it might go sideways. And in those moments, your ability to stay cool, seize opportunities when they present themselves, allows you to keep moving forward. So keep breathing. Another way of thinking about this is preserve whatever you can. If it all is going south on you, preserve, preserve, preserve. Keep breathing. Keep as many orders as possible. Keep as many resources available to you as you can. Who knows what will come down the road? I'm reminded of the movie Castaway, when Tom Hanks who is stranded on an island, finally gets off the island because he builds himself a makeshift raft 
when he gets home after years being gone and stranded, he returns to find that his wife, who had thought he had died, has now remarried. And in an honest conversation with a friend later, where his friend asks him, how could you handle such tragic events? All that work, all that energy to find that your wife had remarried. Tom Hanks recounts the story of how he got off the island in the first place. He said he had thought about committing suicide multiple times. And at various points, when all hope was lost, it was all he could do to keep breathing. And then one day, the tide brought in what would ultimately be his rescue. The remains of a porta potty that would become his makeshift raft. And in telling that story to his friend, he said, So what am I going to do now? Well, I'm going to keep breathing. Because who knows what the tide will bring in. When you come up with your plan, plan to the entry point, knowing that at some point it's going to go sideways. Remain flexible. Seize the opportunities when they present themselves. And always keep breathing. But before we go any further and get into the mission breakdowns that we have planned for tonight, let's pause for a moment to thank Mythic Games for sponsoring the podcast. Mo Games is an online supplier of all things Infinity. As part of its sponsorship of Metachemistry, Mo will be providing a discount code to its store available to all our patrons, as well as a $40 gift card that can be raffled off to our community once a month. Make sure to like our Facebook page and join our Discord to ensure that you are entered to win that raffle. So, let's check in with tonight's lineup, which will be Devin, Ian, and myself. Let's start with Devin. Devin, how's it going? What have you been thinking about as it relates to Infinity? Games have been going on Tuesday nights now for quite a few weeks, and we've all been able to get out and play some. I'm curious how coming out of the COVID hibernation and getting real games on real tables with real opponents has felt to you. Yeah, so I've been able to make it out a couple times. I haven't been able to get a game in every visit, but I got to play within the last couple weeks, which was nice. It was good to get models out on the table. Also reminds me how much I have to paint still. So <laughs> there's that. But yeah, it was fun. I was able to play people locally, see people that I haven't seen in over a year. And it was just kind of uh, relieving in a lot of ways, I guess. Just kind of uh, help settling back into things returning somewhat to the way that they, they were before, where we could get together regularly and, and enjoy the game together. So I definitely appreciate that. I'm curious what your experience was having played primarily TTS games and now getting back into actual physical games. Can you make any observations about making that transition? You, more than anyone on our cast, were able to adapt to the TTS environment. So I'm curious now, adapting back, what that was like for you. I guess that part of it was that checking range bands was a little bit different. I feel like I only got caught out once where I was engaging and just gotten to a less favorable range band that I chose. But I could feel that a little bit. It wasn't something hugely drastic. Yeah, I guess double-checking skills and stats is not quite as fast. 
compared to TTS, considering you know, you're already moving things around with the mouse, presumably, anyway, and so you can just hover over a unit and see those immediately. Now, to be fair, those aren't always correct, especially, you know, with updates and the like. But I miss that a little bit, and there were one or two times where I had to go back to Army and check something that maybe took a, a few moments longer than I did otherwise. But I don't feel like it was tremendously different. That's interesting that you highlighted a lot of the informational abilities that you can get in a TTS game, like the convenience of that as opposed to an actual in-person game. For me, the handful of times I played on TTS, I always noticed I struggled with being able to get a overall picture of the table. I feel like one of the skills I've developed over time is in a physical game, I can quickly assess the state of the game and what's going on. I always had trouble acclimating myself to the TTS environment where you're zooming in and out and pulling back and scanning and sliding and moving. And I couldn't ever get that one shot view that I was able to do so quickly in a physical game. And so it was always hard for me to take to TTS in some ways because of that. That's interesting that you mentioned that because now I think about it, I feel like it might have been a little bit easier for me being able to navigate the board quickly. I have a multi-monitor set up, so I could have my list up and ready whenever I needed it while I'm in-game, and I can check back and forth, or I can have the mission in case I want to see the objectives constantly. You know, so I can refer those. I can just tab through applications really quickly for those sorts of things, whereas if I were on the phone or something, like that's going to be, oh, hold on, let me go into my Google Drive and then launch the PDF and then let that load and then get to my page and all that jazz. Despite that, I still think that the games are longer. Makes total sense to me. Yeah, TTS games definitely still ended up being longer, and I'm not sure if that's the more laid-back environment and not really having time constraints, or just getting the initial setup and doing the lobby and getting the list together and things like that kind of contributed to that. Or if people just tend to play slower over TTS than they might in person. I think it's easier to get some of that information quickly and to kind of check every angle that you possibly could and things like that. So I think that that leads people to take longer to make plays. And I know I've been guilty of that as well, where because it's easier to get that information, I can be more precise. I can set silhouette markers exactly in the right place. I can just start angling the camera to get that perfect spot. And those things are checked more frequently. Yeah, totally. I think that concept of precision does make the game a bit longer, actually, in TTS. Like, you have right there built into your movement a ruler that gets you right up to the millimeter, right? And so I would notice you're always trying to min or max all of that kind of movement patterns, where when you're playing in real life, you're just moving along with a ruler or some kind of measuring device or tape measure. And you're and sometimes just kind of guesstimating how close exactly you are. You certainly aren't being as precious about movement. And I think that just kind of can be extrapolated to all the other forms of engagement, including changing facing and all that kind of stuff. So I don't know. I didn't mean to turn this into a TTS versus real life side chat, but I was curious how it's been for you. So thanks for giving me your feedback. But we got to move on to our other co-host. Ian, we didn't forget about you. Buddy, how have you been doing? And I'm curious about what you've been thinking about as you've been prepping for 
Salt Lake Showdown, getting a lot of games in, and somehow able to get other games in with other systems, too, at the same time. You are a game master, my friend. What's going on? Focusing on getting everything painted up for Showdown. I am sitting at, I believe, seven models left to paint. So hopefully I can get that knocked out with everything else I got going on before Showdown. That includes two of the three HVTs required for unmasking. So those two will be the last ones. It might only be five models that I need to actually finish. Just in case people don't listen to every episode that we put out and how dare they not, could you just quickly give a description of what you mean by Showdown? At the end of June... The 24th, 25th, and 26th is Salt Lake Showdown. It is one of the Four Corners Infinity Circuit tournaments that includes Arizona Armageddon, Rumble on Route 66, and the Colorado Krug. And this is going to be the first major Infinity tournament in our region, if not the U.S., to be in person. And we're super excited for it. Uh, 100 players and... Our meta in Colorado is taking up about 20 of those spots right now, give or take. Things are fluctuating as people are confirmed or a drop-off, but we are excited to go and have a great time with all of our friends in Utah, and it's going to be fantastic. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it as well. So anyways, you're getting some prep in for that, and you've been getting some games in. You want to give us a rundown of what you're learning in that process? Just adjusting to some of the differences of N4 from N3, I basically took a list that I'm extremely comfortable with in N3 for my Merovingians, and I ported it into N4, and then I actually got to add some more stuff to it because of the SWC drops on a lot of profiles, and you know some points costs uh, went down here or there, so I was able to adjust and adapt some things to maximize that reduced SWC and pointage, adding some extra models or improving other models to specialists or getting another like SWC weapon in there kind of thing. And now I'm just been trying to get practice with it to really, you know, work out the kinks as far as how it operates in N4. And so far I've been very pleased. The two games I've gotten to run with it the first one was a game of Frontline, and I was able to pull a win. We were playing against Nick Beer, who's one of our local guys. It's a very good player. He's playing Vanilla Combined Army, had an avatar, and he's just kind of crushing me as far as kills and marching up the board. You know, I'm giving as good as, I, as I'm getting on this, but I went second, and I had a 20-point Chasseur that was able to just, you know, sneak into his far zone and take down a flash pulse bot and control that winning me the game on one of my last orders. The other game was a couple nights ago against you, Andrew, and we played unmasking and it was a rough game. I killed one model of yours and you took out about, what was it? 11 or 12 of mine. And that with all of that said, I'm still pretty happy with how my list performed because while my dice weren't particularly lucky, I won a single face-to-face the entire game. The fact was is that the game came down to the results of a single die roll on whether or not I was going to pull a draw because I focused on the objectives right off the bat and was able to reveal all of his HVTs and 
get some of them killed, and it just came down to that last die roll against the remaining one, and he passes the dodge. So, right there. Damn HVTs. <laughs> so, but right there, you know, it, it's just as an example of focusing on the mission instead of killing, depending on what the mission is, even if you're, you know, getting your teeth kicked in by kills, you can still pull a draw or a win if you play right. Yeah, that's a perfect example of what I was trying to talk about with the introduction to this episode which is the idea that everyone comes in with a plan, right? And I know you did too. And early on, it was looking like it was going swimmingly, like you were sticking your landings on over-infiltration. You got out to a major lead because you focused on the mission. But like you said, it started to unravel. And yet what I was really impressed by is you stayed sharp on your objectives. And so even when, like by all intents and purposes, like the thing had gotten way away from you, you were like, I'm going to keep breathing. I'm going to maximize what I can do. And then you had a certain amount of resources, I think basically five orders, counting irregular and some other stuff. And you were able to efficiently score the objectives. And like you said, like you were one dice away from scoring a draw. Like it was very impressive. What I'm hoping our listeners can take from this is infinity is not like other conventional war games operate like there is always a chance if you can keep breathing like i was saying if you can just stay in the fight and not relent you'd be surprised at how much you can still accomplish as you're preserving any thoughts there absolutely how it works i've had numerous games against numerous opponents where i've been able to pull a win out of a retreat or I've been able to do a last minute grab with, you know, a final order or two and take that objective in games where my opponent is under the assumption that they have all but won the game already. And I have been able to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. How about Devin? Do you have anything to add in this little bit of conversation about how to stay in the game, stay in the fight? I think that the big part of it is, like you said, to just breathe. If you keep looking for opportunities on the board, you'll find that most missions and a lot of outcomes in many of these missions are only a handful of dice rolls away. Even if someone has a commanding lead, just a couple things going wrong could completely dismantle what looked like an insurmountable lead. And so it kind of encourages you to be vigilant on both sides. If you're already ahead, know that, hey, you lose a couple key pieces and you might be out that lead that you thought. And as the underdog, you know, a couple things go right. You make a couple saves as you're doing something. You take out a couple key pieces. You make it to an objective and, you know, you only have one order to give it a shot, but you make it there and try it. Those sorts of things will turn the game around potentially. It's a big learning curve in Infinity, but you get this lesson down, you really are on your way to success. We know that we have a number of people who listen to the podcast who are new to the game. And it makes sense you're listening to podcasts because you're trying to take in as much information as you can as you're acclimating to a new system, a new game. And we know how rough Infinity can be on new players. And so we just want to say, take heart, stay in the fight. Uh, recognize that it's all learning. Try to divorce results from process. See what you can learn along the way. And if nothing else, 
when it's going south on you, breathe a bit and just allow yourself to pay attention to what is taking place and then diagnose it afterwards and say, what do I need to learn from this so I can get better? Because I tell you, it may sound easy for us to say and harder to do, but once you start doing it, it becomes a pattern and you're off to the races. So we want to encourage you as you continue in your journey with Infinity. It's a great game and very rewarding, but it's going to make you work for it. Okay, we got to jump into two missions. So we're going to keep this conversation moving along. And uh, fortunately for us, both these missions are pretty easy to kind of engage and get our heads around. That doesn't mean that they're simple. It doesn't mean that they're not fun. In fact, I would argue both these missions are incredibly fun to play, but we can really quickly diagnose what's at stake with both of them. We're going to start off with decapitation. And to get us going, I was wondering if EAS has become kind of the norm. Could you give us a walkthrough of the mission? What are the objectives? What are the profile contours of this mission? Let's get on the same page in terms of what decapitation has to offer. Decapitation is the first of killing-based missions that we've really covered. We've done some holding ground missions. We've done some objectives, things like that. But this is the first one that we're covering where all the points are scored based off of you killing stuff. So how this mission works is that you get three objective points for killing more army points of your opponent than they kill of yours. So right there, three points if you kill more of their stuff than they kill of yours. Now, it's called decapitation because the other major objective is to kill more lieutenants than the adversary. So that's three objective points to kill more lieutenants. If each of you kills at least one lieutenant and have the same number of lieutenants killed, that's two points. And then your final three points are made up by two HVTs that are on the table per person that are both designated targets. You get two objective points per. The biggest things with this mission as far as additional rules is that it has the reinforced tactical link rule, which means that retreat is not in effect. So this is one of those missions you can't kill too many of your opponent's guys and put them in retreat. It's not going to happen. Retreat's not a thing here. Now, as part of that, though, the lieutenant's identity is open knowledge from the beginning of the game. So each player has to say who the lieutenant is. It's not secret. And what this means, then, is that if you lack a lieutenant because he's been killed during the tactical phase of your active turn, then you have to nominate a new lieutenant, and they're the instantly the lieutenant, and it goes on from there. This means that if each player has a lieutenant killed in each turn, that you could get up to three lieutenant kills total per player if everything worked out perfectly. Then the other kind of major thing is that this is a meat grinder mission, and that is contributed to by the fact that the deployment zones are 16 inches. So no, your normal stuff starts closer. Your forward deployment stuff starts that much closer. Your infiltrators aren't super affected, but everything's right there. Shorter range weapons could be useful here. And no classifieds. Yeah, that's actually interesting, right? That two HVTs and yet no classifieds. We usually associate HVTs with classifieds. So that's an interesting feature. And to speak more about 
some of the interesting features of this mission. Devin, what are some of the distinct things that stick out to you about this mission that we need to be taking note of as we're kind of unpacking this, the first of our like kill missions that we're exploring on the podcast? The trickiest thing with this mission is trying to balance the right blend of offense and defense. Not only are you trying to eliminate as much of your opponent's forces as possible, but in order to make sure you maintain that lead, you need to preserve your own points, and particularly you need to protect your lieutenant and your designated targets. So it's uh, a lot of dancing back and forth between those two modes of play uh, that I find really interesting. And the uh, enhanced deployment zones means that you're going to be in the thick of it basically right away, especially if you have something that has a form of advanced deployment on top of that. Uh, so you can really uh, get right to it. But yeah, not having to worry about retreat, not having to worry about loss of lieutenant. They kind of streamline the game in a way and just kind of encourages you to to let loose and just go in guns blazing against against your opponent, unlike a lot of the other missions we've discussed. Um, one thing that is kind of interesting is that if you're using models with chain of command, you could potentially leave yourself at a detriment because that will trigger immediately instead of just at your tactical phase at the beginning of your turn. So you could inadvertently give your opponent more opportunities to get lieutenant kills if you're not careful. There's not really a reason to have chain of command in this mission because there's no loss of lieutenant, but depending on your list construction, Maybe it was something that, you know, this is only one mission where that matters. You might have chain of command in both if you tend to be a little bit more cautious. And that could come up to bite you. So just something to keep in mind, at least, that if they knock out your chain of command, they can immediately start going after your next lieutenant, who, again, is going to be public information. Yeah, I want to camp out on that discussion about chain of command and, like, broaden it a bit to the larger factor that you alluded to and that is this mission to me is okay as it stands alone it becomes very interesting almost fascinating when you start factoring in playing this mission in the context of a tournament and when we talk about ITS we're talking about three to five missions at a given event and it's one thing to tune your list towards the basic objectives of decapitation in a standalone engagement. It's another thing to factor in, yeah, but I might need this list for a number of different missions over the course of the tournament. And so you raise a great point with just the chain of command by itself. And that is chain of commands, while normally in most missions is a boon, it can be a liability for decapitation. And in decapitation, it's a liability, but for a lot of missions, it's really great to have that security blanket. So it really makes some interesting choices in terms of list building when you start thinking about decapitation in the context of a tournament. So Devin just highlighted for us some interesting features. Now let's talk general strategies. Like I said at the opening of this podcast, everyone starts off with a plan. And everyone would acknowledge that plans go sideways really quickly. It still is beneficial to think through how you want to approach the beginnings. Plan to the entry point, as I said at the beginning. So let's talk about your general strategies and how you think about this mission. 
Ian, does this mission benefit going first or second? And what is your strategy when you're going first versus when you're going second? Are you willing to keep initiative and choose to go first or second? Or are you going to pick a deployment and give initiative to your opponent? Uh, If I win the role, I am choosing initiative and going first every single time. Because this mission doesn't have end of round or end of game scoring. It is entirely based on kills that you're primarily going to get in your active turn. So I want to be able to engage my opponent first and leverage the full strength of my list at that moment. So my plan is, if I get the initiative, and I I don't care if I have to deploy first, that's inconsequential to me getting to go first. Because... If I go first, I'm going to focus on killing as much of my opponent's army as I can as quickly as possible. If an opportunity presents itself to take out a lieutenant, I absolutely will take it. And my lists for a mission like this specifically are going to be designed to take things that are going to make it hard for my opponent to defend a lieutenant. And those are things like AD or parachutist or especially parachutist deployment zone troopers, uh, infiltrators, things like that, that I can kind of flood the board with a lot of guys that they aren't necessarily going to know what they are because they're camouflaged, but they're closer. And then guys that can drop in or walk in on the, off of the board edges and assassinate those guys like i'm not i don't normally hunt lieutenants in games but when the mission is hunting lieutenants i will bring the tools to be able to do that effectively so when you are talking about all these different special skills that allow you to get at their lieutenant quickly it's kind of what i classify as having reach in your list sometimes reach is being able to reach out and touch someone at range like a sniper rifle has great reach, right? But other times, there's certain skills that allow you to go in and hunt down a lieutenant, dig them out if they're hiding, find them where they, like, get to wherever they're at. And I love having those kind of tools in my tool belt when, just in general, but especially in a mission like this. So, Devin, how about you? When you're thinking about this mission, are you like Ian? Are you wanting to go first? Do you have anything to add to that, or do you want to take a counterpoint? I would say that going first tends to be beneficial for this kind of mission, and it can really reward taking the initiative if you have sufficient reach. But I would be careful about potential counter deployments. You have to bear in mind that there's likely going to be very solid defenses that your opponent is setting in between you and the lieutenant. And things that are going to try and take as much of your efficiency as they can. Stripping orders via strategic command token usage, using midfield skirmishers or mind layers, cheap neurosynetic units, core fire teams with just outrageous ballistic skill. Lots of things that will make it difficult for you to try and extract them intentionally. And if you lapse, when deploying first, they can really take advantage of some of those situations and get you in nasty crossfires. You know, if you're not careful, those may be templates coming at you that can tag more than one unit, things like that. Now, obviously, you always want to plan 
to try and avoid those sorts of things. But, you know, the reality is that that just doesn't always happen. Sure. If you're playing a good player, right, even if you're a really good player, you need to assume that they're going to find angles and advantages. So you really got to be on point with your deployment, even when going first, for sure. The danger is that if you lose your momentum on first turn, you've extended yourself for a counterpunch that could be devastating in this mission. So I think it depends. I think it's a lot more reliant on the list that you have and the tools that you have available in terms of whether to take initiative or deployment. So I guess I'd kind of say I'm on the fence. I may lean towards taking initiative and going first, but there's definitely a lot of value if you have those tools to kind of keep people at bay and let them spend orders to run into guns and then continue on with your second turn. I'm with you guys. I want to go first in this mission generally. That said, I love counter-deploying my opponent. That's one of the things I feel like I've developed a real skill for, and I relish opportunities to do some of the shenanigans that you just described. Here's what I then want to ask you, Devin. Given the fact that it probably is beneficial to go first, but your opponent is likely to want to do that as well, you're not guaranteed to get to go first. How do you set up your approach when having to go second? What are the things you're thinking about in order to repost initiative? If I'm going second and someone's coming into me in a mission like this, I would say that... I feel like people are very cautious right now, at least from a lot of games that I've played in terms of their deployment. I think that you still need to have some of that in this mission because you need to preserve points. But having a blade of arrow pieces, things like flash pulse bots or Delami or Halots or similar, those sorts of tools are very, very valuable in this mission. Even if you are going first, just having those to kind of watch your back Things that trade up efficiently are gold in this mission. You know, if you can take a 8 or 10 point Ghazi and you drop a heavy infantry or you brick a tag or you have some other cheap warbands that even just dropping one or two troops, that can get you a lot of value because you're not really caring about them going down in return because you're just they can project so much further above what their points cost would suggest if they have the right targets. So having kind of, a, I guess, a blade of defenses, especially if you can kind of tuck those away into your second group, have them deploy a little bit further forward, often, not always, because, you know, backfield protection is really important, and some factions, it's much more important than others to have. So having those as a way to... Just kind of slow your opponent down, because even if you're not killing things in arrow, which is typically not what you're going to do anyway, just slowing them down so that they can extend and then lead into your own counterattack is really valuable. So I would say, typically in something like this, I'd have a pretty durable lieutenant, you know, something like a Tariq Mansuri or an Asura or Hector or things like that. You know, making it so it's very difficult to try and remove them on a good day and then layering defenses around them. Those things are really valuable. And also when someone is going first, they're usually not pressing forward with the majority or probably even half of their list. So it kind of leaves them open. If you have other things to project on your second turn, you have those drop troops, you have 
hidden deployment models, impersonators, things like that. You can really do a lot of damage in what may be a rather unprotected backfield after they kind of take their initial onslaught with their more powerful pieces. Yeah, Devin, you raise a number of points that I would love to hear Ian talk about. So I'm going to pass this to you, Ian. Talking about like the ablative defensive pieces, ever since N4 dropped, I've quickly became of the opinion that certain profiles like Delami, Jaguar, or one of the troops that you like to run, a Metro with a Panzerfaust, cheap troops that can trade up big. They're some of the best ARO troops in the game right now, in my opinion. I would love you to unpack the value of a trooper profile like that, how you use them to defend, especially when going second. And then the other topic I'd love you to address is the idea of when your opponent extends themselves, how do you use AD, parachutist, and other kinds of skills to break down and come at them sideways or sometimes in the rear to get your kills and to score big wins in this mission? So let's start with arrow pieces, cheap arrow pieces like Panzerfausts. I like to take a lot of cheap arrow pieces, specifically if you're playing Hakaslam Hatsassins, or if you're playing Ariadne and Merovingia. They both have, in forms of like the Delami and the Metros, access to some very cheap infiltration profiles that have camouflage you know it doesn't have mimetism but they have camouflage and then you know access to a panzerfaust or shotguns template weapons you know things like that that make them very easy to kind of litter the board with and they're cheap enough that you can still take a decent amount of expensive heavily equipped troops elsewhere in your army and you kind of litter the midfield with these things if you're Bold, you can try to infiltrate them across the halfway mark, although their fizz is usually fairly low to do that. But the advantage to these models, especially in ARO, is that because they don't have surprise shot, you don't lose anything or any advantage by using them in ARO versus using them in active turn. A lot of times you want to use your camo troopers and you know wait on them until active turns so you can take advantage of surprise shot and their increased burst. But with these specific models, there is no surprise shot. They're going to be burst one anyway with the Panzerfaust. So they're great to just kind of hold off on and use as an ARO piece. And you know, if your opponent moves up their link, reveal and shoot the guy that's not the link leader. Make it an unopposed role because both these models have fairly low ballistic skill. You know, 10 on the Metro, I believe the Delami is probably 10 or 11, but they have fairly low ballistic skill. So you want to get that unopposed shot. And then when you do that, yeah, your guy is probably going to die. But if you can take out a guy in that link and drop their link bonus down, and they're not getting their plus three ballistic skill, you've won. You've just traded up. Because your guy costs, you know, 5 to 12 points. Their guy probably costs a lot more than that. Multitudes sometimes. And in regards to that, also, when your opponent moves themselves out of position by moving up, it becomes a lot easier to come at them with 
combat jump or parachutist troops coming from side or behind or you know wherever you need to with the combat jump. And this is especially powerful with the combat jump because a common tactic, which is a very good tactic, is to hide your lieutenant prone high up on a building that's going to be extremely difficult to access without climbing plus or spending a ton of orders. Well, if you have a guy with combat jump, especially something like a Santiago Knight or the Lu Xing in Yu Ching that has, they both have multiple wounds and high armor, and in Lu Xing's case has the uh, explode skill when it drops, they can jump right in front of your lieutenant, take whatever hit they might take from him, and then just annihilate the lieutenant. So the tactic is a sound tactic, generally, to hide your lieutenant in that manner, but understand that there is a tool or two that doesn't care about that and will still be able to reach it. And if your opponent has those tools, well, it's not great. So anticipating that, if you can take an Evo bot to contest the jump or have models that have mine layer or spend your orders to lay mines around to kind of help out with that. But they are kind of the equalizer in this mission of there are some models that have skills that don't care how you deployed or what you've done. They will have the ability to get to your lieutenant no matter what. Yeah, that's a great point, Ian. Thanks. Gosh, I'm realizing we are under time constraints because we need to cover another mission. But I, there's one more thing I want to get into. I, there's no way we're going to be a, as exhaustive as I think we would all want to be with this mission. So we're not going to get into maybe list building, but I do want to ask this question of both of you and see how you respond. And that is, Devin already kind of highlighted this a little bit. What kind of lieutenant are you looking for in a mission like this, given that it also has to be a part of likely a five-game tournament or a three-game tournament? So what kind of lieutenant are you picking? And then how are you protecting it? Ian, you've highlighted the tactic of hiding your lieutenant high in a way hidden somewhere i know for me personally just to full disclosure because i play alf i don't have the option to take cheap lieutenants generally in the first place so i'm generally going to lean towards a strong lieutenant but the other thing is i've really moved quite a bit away from hiding my lieutenant i choose generally to layer my defenses with my lieutenant and have a lot of eyes on my lieutenant and protect my lieutenant that way, mainly because four out of five times hiding your lieutenant might be fine. But when your opponent has that one troop, that one tool that can go dig them out, you're pretty much screwed. There's not a lot you can do. And so the combination of me running usually elite lieutenants and the fact that that means I want to get them in the game and all sorts of other things. I tend to like overlap my defenses, but I'm curious how you guys would answer this question. So let's start with Devin and then we'll go to Ian and then we'll move on to our second mission. Yeah, I would say that I tend to lean usually one of two ways. I either tend to play expensive lieutenants, high-end lieutenants, things that I'm going to rely on to get work done, or specialized troops that have extra command skills, like something that has strategists or something that has extra lieutenant orders or command tokens or things like that, things that incentivize you for making them lieutenants that may not necessarily be powerhouses on their own. So those are probably the main ones that I do, or sometimes both. 
like the aforementioned Asura and Tariq both have Lieutenant plus one order. So checks all the boxes there. But yeah, I think those are models that are just going to be difficult to deal with on a good day. Like just trying to get them off the table normally is a pain. I pretty much never run line trooper lieutenants. I don't like spending the points on that. I don't like taking up the combat group slot with that. It's just not something that I tend to do. So, you know, super secret tech when you're playing me, it's not the Ghulam or whatever. <laughs> but yeah, otherwise, other elite options, typically something like camouflage. If you can have a lieutenant that's camouflage, like the anathematic comes to mind, what are you going to do? You have to find it first. And then when you reveal it, I mean, you know which marker it is, of course, but when you reveal it, you still have a mimetism six trooper with effective three wounds and five armor to chew through. So that's never a good time. It's the beast. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, taking just something that's really difficult, like tag lieutenants, there's not as many anymore, but tag lieutenants can fall under that category. But also I like things that can handle themselves in close combat because that is the counter to a lot of these tactics is, okay, you run an impersonator. Okay, well, my lieutenant is Achilles, so good luck with that. Or, you know, you have some other trooper where they want to get into close combat with you to negate either you're just so squishy that a dice plus two, three, five, six to your roll is going to easily outclass cheaper lieutenants, or for something like a tag or a number of heavy infantry, you can just beat them to death in close combat uh, without them having a meaningful reprisal. So things that are good in close combat, uh, again, Hector and Starmata comes to mind. Those sorts of things are really valuable because I think that's a common tactic to expect. So defensive strategy, tougher lieutenant. How about you, Ian? Playing Ariadna, especially Miravinja, you don't necessarily have access to that per se. I might be wrong. So uh, I would be curious how you approach your lieutenant selection and how do you defend them? So... Typically, I feel that, you know, the go high, go prone, hide the lieutenant is very useful for a lot of factions that don't have access to a lot of elite lieutenants. But the best way to do that is if you can get a camo lieutenant, because they need to discover you first. And there's then only, I think, two models now that have the combat jump explode rule. So unless you're fighting against Yu Ching or Morats and combined army that have those models, unless you're fighting against one of those, you don't have anything to worry about from that. Because even if they jump in front of you, they still have to spend an order to discover you if you don't reveal yourself. And then, okay, if you lose your lieutenant, have a couple more camo guys on the field and just transfer it to them and make them spend those more orders each and every time. So that's my plan. Uh, now, camo lieutenants generally tend to be heavier on the SWC cost to cover the fact that they're camo and that much more difficult it is, you know, to weasel one of those out. But sometimes that's worth paying just in terms of being able to make it that much more difficult for your opponent to discover and kill your lieutenant. I think that's really valid. And listen, when we talk about strategy and game plan, you have to go with what your faction presents you and your opportunities 
that are kind of inherent to the kind of army you have chosen and run. So there's no work around that. You play with what you've got. So what we're going to do is we're going to reset here and we're going to do another breakdown and we're going to spend a little time looking at supplies. For me, supplies is just one of those tried and true missions. I don't know if I've ever played a season of Infinity where supplies wasn't involved in the selection. I really don't. And in large part because it's just a really good, solid, all-around mission. It's interesting, but not overly complicated. And so we're going to take the same approach. We're going to do a breakdown of the mission overview, interesting features, and then some general strategies and list building options. Let's start with you again, Ian. Give us a mission overview. Walk us through what are the objectives of this mission. For supplies, it's a standard mission deployment setup. It has three tech coffins across the center of the board. And the objectives here are for at the end of the game, if you control a supply box by pulling it out of the tech coffin, that's one point for each supply box. There's a total of three supply boxes possible. At the end of the game, if you control more supply boxes than your opponent, that's three objective points. And at the end of the game, if your adversary does not have any supply boxes, that's two points. And then there are two classified objectives worth one point each. There is an HVT, and the mission does end in retreat. Now, the important things here are that only specialists can extract supply boxes from the tech coffins. Once the box has been extracted, anybody can pick it up and take it if the specialist you know is dropped or he drops it and other than that doctors and paramedics get a plus three to their whip roll and make two rolls if they're the ones trying to extract a box and there is a little thing with the intocom cards called counter espionage so at the end of the game if one of your two classifieds that you've completed has the little plus like paramedic symbol on it, it will actually cancel a fulfilled objective from your opponent that has the crosshair symbol. So that's going to be very unreliable and very much random chance because you know you'll have to draw one and your opponent will have to draw the other and you'll both have to complete and you'll have no idea if it'll actually match up until the end of the game. So don't count on this actually being a thing, but it might possibly be there. So the whole point of this mission is that you are pulling supply boxes out of the tech coffins and trying to play keep away from your opponent with them. So that raises a really good point, Ian, as I throw it to Devin. Devin, I'd love you to highlight some interesting features. I wonder about just the mission design with the random cards that could potentially cancel and all that kind of stuff. Before we get into the actual mission, I'm curious what you think of a feature like that. And there are others like the ability to add some points to zone of control missions where like you're trying to grab quadrants. Like some of it feels pretty random. I'm curious your general thought about the design of those kinds of missions. Why are they keeping those that kind of thing in? Because there's gotta be something, right? We don't have liaison officers anymore we don't have xenotech technicians anymore so you know some of this has got to stick around yeah they do feel 
kind of random. And like Ian said, this isn't something you can even hope to plan for. Maybe it would encourage you to take an objective with that symbol. If it was already something, you know, you felt pretty comfortable doing. Sure, no reason not to. But just by virtue of that being in the mission, your opponent's less likely, I mean, both of you, are going to be less likely to take a mission with the crosshair symbol. I don't know if these are actually named or called out anywhere, but that's, that's what we're going to go with. So even if that comes up, it's only going to happen, well, I guess maybe not only, but it's very rarely going to happen unless both objectives that your opponent draws are going to be crosshair missions. And that has to, you know, for one of their two draws for classifieds, uh, then, okay, they have to. But then you also have to be in a position where you manage to grab one of the medic cards. So I don't anticipate it coming up very often because you have a measure of choice in this. The Intelcom use for adding points to a zone, I'm kind of torn on it, honestly. I think it's kind of an interesting idea that you give up the uh, classified objective points, usually one point anyway, sometimes two. But in the missions where you can use that to add points to a zone, it's always going to be worth more than that if it works out. So it's kind of an interesting risk-reward effect. Is it too random for something that's going to be uh, highly competitive? Not necessarily. I don't think it's so wild that it's going to massively swing the outcome of a game in most circumstances. I mean, occasionally you could run into something like Frontline, which I believe has that use, and you could drop it in your opponent's zone, and they were fairly certain that you couldn't have it. But again, you announce your Intel comm usage, so I feel like you just murder everything <laughs> in a given zone, because you have to. Yeah, there's a certain cost threshold that they can add to, but if they don't have anything in the zone, they don't get to add to it anyway. So is it too much to belong? Not necessarily, but I also wouldn't miss it if it left. I've had this specific situation of a classified card canceling another classified card come up precisely once. Yep. I don't think it's going to be very common. Yeah, it's mostly a gotcha. I don't know if I've ever had it happen to me. So that interesting feature slash bug aside, I'm curious, Devin, what other features do you find interesting about supplies? I think the things that stand out about supplies, part of it is that it's simplicity in construction from a mission standpoint, not necessarily a, a list standpoint, where something like this, I would typically expect to see an exclusion zone of some form. Like that would be very common in a mission like this under other circumstances where you have central objectives that you can capture immediately, or maybe some sort of timer where they can't be captured before the second game round or things like that. But this mission doesn't have anything like that. And I think part of it is because this acts so well as kind of an introductory mission. I think that this is probably when new players move on from having guys shoot each other, this is typically, at least from my experience, been the first mission picked up. And I think having these kind of limited additional qualifiers on the mission really help with that. And I think that's part of why it's chosen. And because, like you said, it's been in season after season, this mission has been around. I don't know if I'd go as far as to say if it's always been included in ITS, because I don't recall, but I feel like it's been there for the majority of its history, for sure. It certainly is a tried and true 
battle-tested mission. Yeah, absolutely. And it's one of those missions where I think this mission is at least partially responsible for the kind of meta choice of, well, you really want to have infiltrating specialists. I think this mission developed that mindset, maybe even on its own, because of how prevalent it is. Because you can jump in right away. You can start just you know a millimeter away from an objective, grab it and run, and just sit back. But there's no restrictions on types of deployments. There's no restrictions on where you can deploy. There's no added role, such as confused deployment to additionally confound those sort of tactics. So they work really well here. They're kind of at their full efficacy in a mission like this, which is something to keep track of for sure. And something to keep in mind when you're building a list. Yeah, the only actual restrictions are that you can't deploy in base with one of the tech coffins and that you can only carry one supply box per model unless you have baggage and you can do two. And that only models can carry supply boxes. So markers, including camouflage and impersonation and hollow and all that, none of those can carry the supply boxes. If you have a supply box, you aren't hidden. Your opponent knows exactly who you are and they can beeline right for you. Yeah, not being able to go back into a marker state is something to be aware of for sure. So kind of with that in mind, we're starting to creep into strategy. Let's dive all the way in. I'm going to start with you, Devin. Do you feel like this mission benefits going first or second? How do you handle that choice? Would you consider keeping initiative regardless one way or the other? These are kind of standard questions at this point. I would say that there are definitely good reasons for both. This kind of boils down to list construction in a lot of ways, because if you have the tools to take advantage of an initial run, you know, starting out near an objective, particularly if I were playing Rama and I had a Tareg doctor or two, and I've got two dice on 18s to pull something out of the box, I'm going to play very differently knowing that I have those infiltrators right there that are also going to be hidden from my opponent during deployment, most likely compared to something that's a little bit more static or defensive uh, in my deployment zone. So obviously going first, you can potentially make a good run at the objectives, grab them immediately, and then run away back to your deployment zone and just hunker down and make it really difficult for your opponent to get them if they don't have those forms of reach. But this does score at the end of the game, and that's always something to keep in mind when considering what to choose for initiative. Uh, or whether to even take the choice of initiative, is that, okay, well, you could have all the boxes at the end of your third turn, but if your opponent's going last, they could have something and start dropping all of your guys and pick up your boxes, and then you have nothing. So I think that there's an argument to be made for both. I think that oftentimes it's probably easier for most players to take first, grab the boxes, and defend them, as opposed to try and extract them from the opponent, but that's going to vary quite a bit, you know, between your just your general style of play and what tools you happen to have available. Yeah, tools are a big piece of this, right? What kind of profiles you have access to, they're going to condition a lot of your choices and your strategy. I will offer this up. I think that the idea of allowing your opponent to grab the supply boxes kind of assumes that they're competent 
And I would generally want to do that anyways, right? I think it's a mistake to plan for someone to be incompetent, right? But if they are competent, they are going to be able to not only secure that supply box, but also defend it well. So there's a kind of game that's played there that I wonder if you're boxing yourself in to a corner a little bit. If part of your strategy is, I'm going to allow my opponent to grab it, and then I'm going to go get it from them. They're competent enough to grab it, but not competent enough to hold me off, you know? I just wonder about that a little bit. I don't know what you think about that, Ian. (laughs) Since only specialists can actually extract the boxes, if you've been unlucky and your specialists are dead or not in the position to get to the tech coffins that haven't been opened, you know, sometimes you just need to let your opponent open that box and then kill the guy and take the stuff from him. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's nothing wrong with a good mugging. (laughs) That's right. Absolutely. And I'm just saying more like, for sure, if my opponent gets the supply box, I'm going for him. But I don't know if I want a general strategy that counts on them, one, being able to get the supply box, and two, if they're good enough to get it, I shouldn't assume that they're they're going to just allow me to have it. I don't know. I just Maybe I'm parsing this a little bit too finely. Sure. No, no, I, I agree with you. It, it, I think it's more of an, uh, a strategy on the fly of desperation of that if I can't pull the supply boxes, that I have to take them from you. But I think this is more that, you know, you should plan on getting them yourself. And especially if you're going second, it needs to be more of a, how do I prevent my opponent from getting the supply boxes, which is where infiltrating camo troopers with mine layer come in because you can make that supply box look really unappealing or they're going to have to spend a ton of orders to get there and they might have something still blow up in their face. Anything that slows them down or makes it harder for them to get there. And then you might have a guy that's a specialist right there that can grab it on your turn. Or if they did manage to get up there, you got a guy that pops out and arrows them to death after when they grab the box and Hey, it's sitting right there and you can grab it and run. But making it unappealing to get that close to the boxes in the first place is probably your best strategy for going second. And just to clarify on that point, I, I'm not advocating that you should plan to go second so that your opponent can open the boxes and take the s- supply boxes and run away with them so that you can chase them and take it. Mostly just that if you're going second, it's valuable to know that you have the last word you are not going to have any additional reprisals when your turn is up because of reasons like you just stated ian it's not always going to be feasible for them to get uh, all of the boxes on the first turn even to get one or two boxes is not a guarantee by any means if you have some sort of presence to try and push them back or you know you run into someone who is more focused on i'm just not going to let you get to the boxes so my first turn i'm going to be shooting all of your stuff so that way next turn i can get them you know, for strategies like that as well. So, yeah, mostly just that you know that you're going to have last say is a reason that going second may be beneficial. Would I take the choice of initiative and choose to go second? No, I would not do that in this mission. But I would not feel handicapped if I ended up playing second. Yeah, bingo. I kind of am probably, depending upon skills, tools, whatnot, going second certainly is not a handicap. And if I am going second, my strategy is going to be contest everything. I very rarely in any mission want to seed the board, seed space, seed ground, 
ever to my opponent. I want to contest as much as I can, as appropriately as I can. I only raised that whole thing about like allowing them to get the thing and then stealing it from them. Because I've heard that thrown around as a strategy. And I just always kind of wonder at that. I always assume I'm playing a good player. And if I'm playing a good player, that general strategy is not one I want to take. I want to assume they're competent, they're going to kick some serious tail, and I need to like make it as hard as possible as I can. It is overly optimistic, to be sure. I mean, I guess this is where... AD troopers come into play because then they just come in where the guy that has the box is and take it from him. But like, you still got to work for that. <laughs> Probably harder than you need to. Yeah, totally. Okay, so then let's touch on some skills and some list building options for the mission and how you would approach tackling this subject. Devin, you want to chime in first? Yeah, so I think this is kind of one of those missions that, as always for me, I like having multi-purpose troops. I like having doctors that are also going to be fighting like Kawadij or Talregs or Parvati and things like that. Now, you don't have to have doctors to complete this mission, of course, but I will fairly commonly have a doctor anyway. And if I'm taking doctors and engineers, which I usually do, they're going to be able to take care of themselves to some degree. Like Again, I just... I don't play line trooper specialists usually. That's just not what I do because I feel like it's difficult to get them where you want them to be. There are exceptions, of course, but I feel like it's harder to get them where you want and then they're more difficult to defend and are less capable on their own. And I'm just not a fan of that myself. So having troops that can both you know, fend off enemy attacks effectively as well as capture the objectives. Those are going to be really valuable in this mission, in my opinion. Also, having good movement or movement skills is really valuable, because if you can take something with Climbing Plus, you can grab one of the supply boxes and you can head up on a roof, even if it's toward the midfield. Maybe you don't have enough orders to get all the way back to your deployment zone, but if you're prone on a rooftop somewhere, that'll at least buy you some time and maybe a perfectly safe spot already, depending on what your opponent happens to have. So things that can maneuver around the board easily, things that start up the board, things that are specialists, of course, are going to be valuable to at least get the tech coffins open, which I feel like that's most of the time. I don't feel like I play supplies often, and there's a ton of back and forth with a given supply box. There's usually not going to be that many exchanges. So you... Most often, it's going to be decided by grabbing it out of the box and taking it away, and then maybe you'll get an attack, and either you lose the box there, or you know you fend off the attacker and keep it. I don't find it very common where your opponent grabs it from you, and on your turn, you grab the same box back from them, and then on your third turn, you grab it again, or things like that. I just don't see that ping-ponging happening, really. How about you, Ian? Infiltrating specialists all the way. You know, it's the order efficiency of starting next to the thing you need to start next to so you can just grab it and go. And I think that's the key to it. You know, you get those up there, you have a probably a decent link team with some long range firepower that will allow you to spot check and remove some of your opponent's models that are looking at those supply boxes before you actually move up to grab them with your infiltrators. This is where I think that, you know, having your infiltrators and your link team in separate groups 
is probably a smart choice so that you're not both vying for the same resources in the order pool. Utilizing your link team in a separate group to take out those models and then that gives you that many more orders for your infiltrators to grab the box and hightail it to safety because it's nothing worse than I spent all my orders removing threats and then I still tried to grab a box and couldn't get anywhere with it and I'm just standing here and get killed. So that is something to think about is how are you putting your list together? Where are your pieces going in relation to the activation resources that they are going to have available to them to do the mission? Yeah. Now, if you're limited insertion, I mean, you got to come up with a good plan to start. So, you know, you're on your own there. But if you're running two groups like you should, keep your link team in a separate group from your infiltrators that are grabbing boxes. Just do it that way. It'll, it'll help. Nice. I would also say just speed in general, right? Like motorcycles that are specialists or remotes, anything that has a base movement skill that starts with six or eight, you're going to like in supplies. I do notice that we've talked about how what's available to your faction conditions, how you play this mission. I know like when I play OSS, I have a hard time squeezing in a doctor or paramedic for the bonus to push the buttons. Not because I don't have access to them, like Dakini paramedics exist, and there's plenty of doctors in OSS, but so many of my lists in OSS are geared around remotes and no-wound in-cap troops that it just doesn't seem to make sense for me to bring a doctor or a paramedic, but then I miss out on the bonuses. And I think, Devin, you've really highlighted throughout these episodes how valuable those bonuses are in season 12 and how reliable it makes pushing that button. So I've noticed that when I've played supplies in OSS, I've actually missed the button a few times when I normally probably shouldn't have. That said, when I play vanilla, I love to run Machion because not only is he a doctor, but he's got Eclipse Smoke. And we know how good Smoke, and in particular Eclipse Smoke, can be in securing those boxes as well. So those are another few of the tools that it's really nice to have access to. Anything else skills-wise or list building that you're thinking about when tackling this mission, guys? I would agree that having something like an AD troop can be super useful in this mission or something else that can just kind of jump in on your opponent. I mean, potentially hidden deployments, but I feel like having the extra flexibility of being able to come in on your opponent's deployment zone, some parachutists can do that, of course. Those sorts of tools are really handy to have if things don't go well and you need to snag a box back and you haven't been able to maintain control of them, you know, as much as you may have liked. So those are really useful to have to just kind of jump in, you know, nearby and snag a box away from someone. So I like having that tool set around. But otherwise, yeah, just kind of the same tune for me of having versatile troops, specialists that can also gunfight or defend themselves is one of my favorite things. Like McKayan is a great profile and it kind of epitomizes that in a lot of ways as far as how I like to play this game, having mm-hmm. kind of a little bit of everything. I mean, I guess he doesn't have necessarily a high powered gun, but otherwise kind of checks everything else off. And Parvati has kind of been more recently kind of been that role for me too, about you know a unit that kind of does a little bit of everything that you need. And so, you know, bring one or two units like that, 
And that helps a lot in terms of uh, consistency, being able to grab these sorts of objectives and not be a sitting duck if something comes after you, because they will. Yes, they will. Ian, any other thoughts? This is such a standard mission, you know, that's been in pretty much every ITS season. This is one of those missions that keeps showing up because it is easy to understand and at its core, you know, just a very basic kind of mission, but it's still fun. So always plan on having the tools to complete this mission. And even if it doesn't pop up, like you'll do well at any other mission that is similar. And it's just a good basic mission that you're going to see at a lot of tournaments. Yeah, totally. It's just a fun mission to play for sure. I've never been bummed out to see it on the slate of a tournament. It's a, it's great. Okay. Well, you guys can begin to think about your final thoughts and while they are putting their ideas together, we're going to remind you of Patreon that you can support the podcast by becoming a patron. Not only does it help us out, but it grants you a number of benefits, such as access to extra content. Just know that 100% of any funds generated through Patreon gets put right back into the podcast. We're committed to making this as quality a podcast as possible. We're definitely thankful for all our patrons and the support that they have shown through their hard-earned money, and we're grateful for that. So find a link to our Patreon page in the show notes if you're interested to help contribute. You'll find a link to our Discord channel in our show notes as well. Speaking of Discord, come join our growing community. We've got a very diverse community at this point with veterans and newer players alike. And it's super welcoming and positive. And we're committed to making it all about the game that we really enjoy to play together. With that said, Devin, Ian, what are your final thoughts? Devin, you go first. Yeah, I think that these two missions, I mean, I guess you could make an argument for Annihilation over Decapitation, but I think these two missions kind of cover a lot of ground in terms of what you might expect to find in an ITS tournament. Not necessarily just by their inclusion, but by the concepts that both of them have. They carry over to a number of other missions. And so you'll hear a lot of the same concepts brought up by a number of us, making sure you have sufficient reach, making sure that you have a plan if you want to go first or if you want to go second. Kind of having your basics covered, I guess, is something that these missions will really assist with. And those skills kind of translate across a wide variety of other missions in this season and, of course, seasons prior. And I'm sure that will continue to in the future. So I would say that these are great missions to practice with in general, if you're trying to get into ITS and using these concepts will help you in other missions and kind of give you something to relate to without necessarily having all of these extra components to worry about. Or even if you are pretty familiar with ITS, these are great ways just to kind of hone in your tactics with a particular list or faction or certain units or just try things out because they're just very specific in terms of this is what you need to do. There aren't very many restrictions beyond do the thing and you can just kind of have at it. I think these are great missions for that. Excellent. How about you, Ian? 
Final thoughts. Like Devin was saying that this is kind of the bread and butter of ITS. This is the mission style that a lot of the missions are based around. So getting your reps in on these kind of missions is going to be very helpful. That said, in my experience and what I've seen is that most of the bigger tournaments, I'm talking the five-game turn two-day tournaments, are going to be running at least one weird mission, like Panic Room or Unmasking or Biotech for something that's more complex and has a lot more going on. The tournament organizers seem content to torment all of us players by just having that one mission that you have to plan for that's different than all of the other missions that are going to be presented. The two-list format helps out here, but the rest of them are generally going to be, you know, supplies or decapitation or acquisition or, you know, looting and sabotage, capture and protect, you know, kind of this core of basic missions that are involved with, you know, running up and grabbing an objective and then keeping that safe, whether it's bringing it back to your zone or defending the console you button push or whatever. So practicing those kind of missions is going to be good because that is going to be the majority of the missions that you are going to play. It's also going to get you used to playing with specialists who aren't necessarily in your list to do the specialization that they're intended for. Like this has a doctor and paramedic bonus. You may be taking that model to do this mission instead of actually to heal your own guys. Ford observers come into their own because forward observing something to put it in targeted state is a generally a risky proposition when you might eat a bullet to the face and your guy could probably just shoot and get burst three and be better off anyway. But in a mission like this, those models come into their own because they are a cheap specialist, usually one point more than the base profile. Same with engineers. They may not be repairing anything you may not actually have any remotes or tags or anything in your list but you might still be taking an engineer because it fits in your points values or many of the engineers that are available now are linkable in some form so you have that order efficiency to drag them up the field to accomplish these objectives you know same with paramedics and some of the doctors you know forward observers and stuff but you know engineers generally ran solo before but especially in this edition, there's a lot of linkable engineers. So regardless of your specialist type, you know, you get a lot of practice in of trying to get them up to accomplish those objectives. And then of course, there's always the defense game. Because once you have it, you've got to keep it. So you're going to be thinking about your fire lanes. You're going to be thinking about skills like mine layer and equipment like mines or drop bears, things like that, that you can use to block off your opponent's routes of advance and delay them uh, or waste their orders and things like that. So play these missions, enjoy them for what they are and use them to hone your skills to be better at the game as a whole. I wouldn't agree more. Yo, my final thought, a little bit more program related. And that is, we know we've been diving deep on mission breakdowns over the last several episodes in large part prepping for the tournament that we're going to be participating in without bringing everybody along for the ride. We know that most of you aren't actually playing in this tournament. No problem there. 
still, these are, as uh, both our other hosts mentioned, these are bread and butter missions in general that are worth exploring together. We're going to broaden a little bit out after this. We might tackle the specific topic of prepping for a specific tournament and give you a report on how things went with Showdown, but then we're looking forward to getting into more skill breakdowns, tactics, and just a variety of broader topics related to Infinity of the Game. So we have really appreciated you joining in with us on this little journey we've been on, and we're looking forward to continuing the conversation. Make sure you jump on Discord and give us your feedback and your thoughts on how you would approach these two missions. With that said, this has been Andrew, Devin, and Ian, and that's the meta.